All right. Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Uh, it is good to see you guys. If I've not met you, uh, my name is Peter Smith. I'm one of the guys here on staff, um, and we're glad that you're here with us. And so we're excited about what God has for us. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into it. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together. You are a sovereign God who holds everything in your hands, and you know uh, exactly uh, who's here today and why we're here, and you know what's going on in every person's life, and you know the text that we're going to be in. And in your sovereignty, we're in this text on this day with us gathered together. And so I know that I have no power uh, to change lives or bring encouragement, but you do, God. And so we come expectantly, trusting the Holy Spirit that he will work in all of our hearts for his purposes and that Jesus will be honored and glorified as we press into the words uh, that Jesus' brother wrote down. And so please help us this morning, Father. May this be uh, uh, glorifying and worship to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I hate to break it to you, but Thanksgiving is over, right? Thanksgiving's over. And last week, we had an awesome time as a church, <clears throat> and man, just so grateful for you. It was good to all be together in one service. I don't know if you've enjoyed that, but I did, and I heard a bunch of you. And so, we are seriously kind of already considered. Man, we're excited about the opportunity, I think, that going forward in January, the new year, we're going to switch some things up again, and we're going to do one service, because we have an ability to all gather together as one church, and that was meaningful and encouraging. And then... Uh, We've got a few other things coming down the pike that we'll tell you about, and so what all that looks like, how that all plays out, we will be sure to let you know. Some of you are already freaking out. You're like, well, I want to know what's going to happen on Sunday, April 27th. What day do I have to be here? We will let you know at least four days in advance of what everything's going to look like, but it'll be good. So we're, we're thinking about gathering together uh, as a church family. We're also looking at some other ways to engage folks, trying to get some <clears throat> potential gatherings together for uh, different groups, right? We'd love to just... We're excited and encouraged by some young families coming and young marrieds and get a chance for those guys and gals just to get in a room and meet each other. And so we're excited about what's coming up in the year ahead and for all of you who are chipping in to do that. So uh, just we'll, we'll let you know what it looks like. But again, we're excited about potentially getting together for one service. Last week's service together was great. So grateful for your kindness and generosity. We want to be a church that tangibly tries to bless other people out of the blessings God's given to us. And through your graciousness and stewarding what God has given to you, we're able to do that. Uh, we had those shoe boxes go out. There was a target of about 7,000, and we actually surpassed that by four or 500. So we're just grateful for all of you who gave your time to run to Target with your kids to buy some stuff, uh, come talk trash and load tractor trailers and pack boxes. Thanks for that. We were able to distribute uh, at 30 and then excess food to different families, some of your friends, some people here, some folks in surrounding communities to try to bless them. You were so gracious in the gift cards. And on Monday, the day after last Sunday service, we were actually able to meet some really tangible needs of some families through your kindness and generosity. And the point of that, like we said, was not to talk about how great we are, uh, but God is a God of love. And he wants his people to be loving to those around him and uh, us, and we had a chance to do that. And so thanks for jumping into that. Uh, 
and I hope it was a good Thanksgiving for you. But like I said, uh, it, is, it is over, and the Christmas season is upon us. I don't know how it happens, but if you were to drive through my neighborhood, many of the houses that like a mere 12 hours ago had turkeys and pumpkins, it's like aliens came, like the holiday aliens came and ate those up because now there's frosties and there's reindeers, right? The, the Thanksgiving season's behind us. We're looking ahead to Christmas in about, uh, we've already, four, you know, this is going to be our last Sunday in James for a while. We're going to take a break. We're going to have a new Christmas series coming up. Uh, do you see what I see? We'll kick it off next week. Every time that I name the title, I will be tempted to sing the song. So you have to pray that the power of the Holy Spirit seals my lips and I do not sing it so that you're all blessed. We're kicking off a new Christmas series next week. But man, we've already sung some Christmas carols this Sunday. Emmanuel in his cool, snuggly little flannel Christmassy shirt. And to make my point that the Christmas season has begun, God in his kindness allowed you to drive to church this morning in a blizzard, right? It is snowing outside. We've sung Christmas carols. The Christmas season is ahead of us. And some of you already know that because if you're a mom, if you're a dad, if you're a grandma, if you're an aunt, if you're an uncle, if you've ever seen a child anywhere in the streets, what has probably already happened for some of you, or you've already started to hear what people want for Christmas. Your grandchild has been texting you a picture of this toy. That will just please them to no end. Your children are starting to leave notes by the coffee maker about that newest toy that they have to have, right? Christmas is upon us, and we're already starting to hear from kids about what they want for Christmas, what they desire for Christmas. And, And some of you may be sitting here today, and you're thinking, man, there's some things I want, right? Like Cyber Monday is in front of me, and all that you've ever wanted for your whole life is that, right, that Instapot. And you will go to bed tonight hoping that on Cyber Monday somebody jumps online and buys you that beautiful, long-awaited Instapot. Actually, I'm very intrigued by Instapot now, right? For a while, 30-year-olds kept telling me how I got to get this Instapot. It'll change your life. I'm like, bro, I got me a Crock-Pot. That was the Instapot before there was an Insta. But apparently, I'm wrong. Because the second, the first service, somebody, man... Uh, they told me about all the reasons that I am ignorant and why the Instapot will change my life. Maybe some of you are just longing for the Instapot. Maybe there's some of you here and you're kind of like me. And to be honest, you're like, you know what? Man, it's going to be amazing to get to buy some gifts for my kids. But for Christmas, I'm good. I don't really need anything. But even if you're here today, whether you're a kid who wants things for Christmas, whether you're a parent who knows what people want for Christmas, if you're a grown-up who wants something for Christmas, or even if you're a grown-up or a kid who doesn't want something for Christmas, there are obviously moments in our lives where we all want things. Every single one of us is going to have some moments in our lives when we want things, when we desire things where there's something that we hope we get, sometimes those things can be as trivial as, I hope I get me an Instapot, or I hope I get that new smart TV, right? But, but other times, what we want are far deeper and more raw and more meaningful than something that will cook a chicken in 22 seconds. Many times, man, we've got, wait, it took a while to move across the room that way. <laughs> Maybe I was looking this one, right? Many times what we want in life, though, is more significant than an Instapot. We have desires 
for certain things. Right now, this morning, at 11.11 on a Sunday morning, is there something that you want? And not just something that you want, like, you know, an unlimited car wash. Is there something that really, in your heart, and your soul, you desire? Do you have a longing for something? Where you look at where you are, and you look at where you've been, and you look at where you want to be, and you think, man, there, there's something I'm not experiencing <clears throat> that I long for, that I hope I'll experience. Is there something that you say to yourself as you think about where you are, if I could just have this thing, if I could have just this thing, then everything in life would be better. Do you want something this morning? Do you desire something this morning? Do you long for something this morning? Is there that thing that you think, man, there's, some, there's, a, there's this gap in my life, and if I could just have that then that is what I desire because that would make it all okay. What, what do we need to know about those things that we want? What do we need to know about those things that we desire, that we long for? What do our desires have to do with us? And then also, how do our desires impact relationships with other people? What relationships are impacted by what we desire? How are we impacted by what we desire? That's what we're going to talk about today. What we do at Calvary is 99% of the time we open up a book of the Bible and we go through it largely <clears throat> paragraph through paragraph, verse by verse, and we've been doing that in the book of James for a while now. I don't know when we started it, but James is a letter written to Christians who were facing persecution. It was written by Jesus' brother, and we've been walking through it. Like I said, we're taking a time out. This will be the last James one until January. We're going to kick off uh, Christmas, but... but we're going to think about what does Jesus' brother tell us about our desires and what it impacts around us. And so we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to, in our time together, see why desires matter. We're going to ask some questions about our desires. And then we're going to kind of have some ideas about a tune-up for our heart. <clears throat> why do desires matter? And then we'll think about some questions about all of our own desires, and then we'll kind of end our time with a little tune-up for our heart. So let me just read this in the entirety, and then we'll kind of come back and walk our way through it. Here's what Jesus' brother writes to Christians in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? <clears throat> Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In the first kind of part of those verses, what James is going to say is that there's two different relationships that are impacted by your desires. What you desire can impact two different sets of relationships. What's the first set 
of relationships. What's the first relationship impacted by our desire? Well, he says that in the very first verse where he says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to a church and to those Christians and to that church, he says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? There are first group that's kind of being impacted is there is a group of Christians in a church who are having some conflict. Shocking, I know. Some of you, right, you're like, whoa, you mean there is conflict sometimes in a church? There, is, there are Christians who don't always get along? I know, it's amazing, right? So if you've never experienced it, you must live in heaven. But if you don't live in heaven, you've experienced it, right? He's writing to this group and saying, guys, there are disagreements among you. There's quarrels among you. There is conflict is going on among you. It's interestingly, there's a, uh, I mean, even within the past two weeks, there's been a lot of articles in non-Christian papers and journals and magazines that are taking not a Christian perspective, but just a cultural and sociological perspective on chaos and conflict that this past two years has caused within churches. I mean, you can look in a lot of secular publications that are observing churches just splintered over the past two years and the issue that it's brought. That, that's going on all around us in evangelical Christianity today, but you know what? It's been going around us since the day that the first church was planted in Jerusalem. It's nothing new, right? It's a tale as old as time that Christians and people who love Jesus don't always love each other well. When you take the biographies of Jesus out of the New Testament, when you take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John out, and you kind of put Revelation out there, most of all of the other books in the New Testament <clears throat> were written to Christians and to churches who were fighting about things. Most of all the letters are written to churches where Christians within those churches can't get along about different things, and the writers of the New Testament are trying to give them instructions. I said a few weeks ago that 1 Corinthians, we're going we're gonna to read a little bit about it when we do communion today, but 1 Corinthians, if you want to read about a church in chaos, read the letter of 1 Corinthians. It will tell all the things that these Christians are fighting and feuding and splitting over. And Paul, this apostle, this church planner, is writing to that church, and he writes a few times, probably a total of four times, and he says, guys, you got to figure this out. Within that letter is those verses that we talked about uh, was spoken about on the Missions Emphasis Week, right? That passage that says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, love does not boast. Those verses were written to Christians who were fighting about all sorts of things, trying to tell them, stop fighting and start loving. Unfortunately, a couple of decades after Paul wrote those letters to that church, that church just couldn't get along and it totally split. And this big chaotic feud once and for all, that church splintered into all different parcels, a church that an apostle wrote to, to try to get their stuff together, they kept fighting. And there was conflict. And there were disagreements. It's not a new strategy that Satan uses to have <clears throat> fights and quarrels among groups of Christians. And there's kind of three approaches, three tactics, the three D's that Satan always uses, right? When he wants to just kind of get people stopping thinking about Jesus and starting thinking only about what they don't like and what they're upset about. Satan loves to distract a church, divide a church, and discourage a church. Distraction, 
division, discouragement. That, that's been going on since the first church of Jerusalem opened up its door with free coffee and warm donuts and come worship with us at the gymnasium in Jerusalem. It's not really historically accurate, but... <clears throat> and you know what? Satan doesn't need to come up with another strategy because that strategy, man, it's effective. <laughs> it works. And it was working in this church. And so what he's saying is, okay, there are quarrels and there are fights and there are disagreements among you. And then what he, James is going to get to is, okay, what is the cause of those things? Like, why are those Christians fighting? What is at the root of those disagreements? And so he's going to tell them here. You can already see it in the second clause of this. He says this. Is it not this? <clears throat> this is the reason that your passions are at war within you. There's quarrels and fights among you, and here's the reason that there's passions that are at war within you, right? Uh, and this idea of passions, the, the Greek word there, it's the Greek word that we get, the, the root of it is the word we use today for hedonism, hedonism. This is this idea, this idea of passions are there's this there's these things that they desire that have this nuance of being sinful, inappropriate things that they desire. They're Christians, but they have those desires, and there's something that they want. Later on, what we're going to see is really what, what's in this is this idea that desires are either the wrong desires, sinful desires, <clears throat> or people are trying to, they have desires for good things that they're trying to satisfy in the wrong way. In this church, people either had sinful desires or they had good desires, but they were trying to satisfy those desires in the wrong way. That was kind of step one. <clears throat> and then where James goes with it after that is, but the desire isn't realized. You don't get that. There's something that you want. And largely what he's saying is you want somebody else to give something to you, to do something for you, to act a way to you. And... You have the passions, they're at war with you, you desire, but you do not have. So you murder, you covet, and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. They have either a sinful desire, they have a good desire that they're trying to accomplish the wrong way, but they just can't get what they want. They can't get the other people to treat them a certain way or think about them a certain way or respond a certain way or do for them what they want them to do. And so it leads to chaos and to conflict and to division. This word murder is kind of like, bro, that's heavy. Like, were these people actually killing each other? There's no evidence that anybody in this church that James was writing to had murdered each other over what brand of coffee to brew, okay? But what's interesting is within this church, there were probably a bunch of Jewish converts who previously had been Jewish zealots. There was this cultural movement known as the zealots, and Jewish, it was a, grew out of the Jewish uh, culture. And in the zealots, part of their philosophy was, hey, if you're in a disagreement with somebody and you can't get from them what you want from them, it's permissible to use violence, and maybe some of that was embedded in these people's thinking. But regardless, what he's saying is, you have a desire for something. You can't get somebody else to give that to you. That desire is unmet, and so it's creating conflict. Here's kind of the first broad reason why your desire matters. <clears throat> because unmet desires can lead to conflict with others. Unmet desires 
can lead to conflict with others. Are you in conflict with someone today? Are you in conflict with someone today? According to James, at the heart of that conflict is this passion that you have, is this desire that you have that hasn't been met. Maybe you've got a desire for a certain reputation. Maybe you have a desire for prestige. Maybe you have a desire for somebody to think about you a certain way and they're not thinking about you that way and it's causing conflict. Maybe there's something that you want somebody else to do. You have a desire for something to be done a certain way or something to be accomplished or something to happen and occur and other people aren't making that happen and so it's creating conflict. Maybe you have a desire for sexual gratification and you're chasing that. It's not being met in the way that you want it to be met. Maybe you think you deserve more. According to James in the beginning of this text, what he says is, look, we all have these passions, we all have these desires, we all have these longings, we can't get those, and so that therefore bleeds into conflict among each other. Or maybe what's happening is we have a desire for something, and perhaps we're trying to satisfy that good desire in the wrong way, or it's a wrong desire, And it's creating conflict around us because it's hurting the people who you rode here in the car with. It's hurting your family. It's hurting your kid. It's hurting your spouse. It's hurting your parents. It's creating conflict and confusion and disorder and chaos. There's this verse, if that's kind of where you are, if you're like, yeah, man, I am in some conflict. And when I dig into it, I'm in that conflict because there's something that I want and that person is not acting towards me or giving to me or doing what I want them to do and so I'm mad at them. If that's your story today or if it has been in the past or if it will be, then there's a verse I'm going to go back to that we talked about a few weeks ago that like you need to like right now, <clears throat> write down or text in your blah, blah, blah here at Philippians 2.3. Because this is the antidote to that. We read this a few weeks ago, but, but here's in Philippians 2, 3. This is what it says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Some of the conflict in our lives is occurring because we think we are the most significant. And we're driven by selfish ambition. And we're driven to have people act the way we want them to act or give to us what we want or have expectations of a certain thing, and it's creating conflict. And what Paul says is, hey, look, do nothing from selfish ambition, but consider others more significant than yourselves. Desires, expectations, one of the first things I've done It's an honor to do premarital counseling and to marry couples. It's a joy. I've done a lot of it because I'm getting a little old. Uh, So I've done a lot of it. And and one of our, the very first session I've done with every single couple is about expectations. Because everybody who's married comes into that marriage with expectations. Expectations about how their spouse will act. Many times those expectations are based on what they just saw their family do. Whether it was dysfunctional or functional, we many times come into marriage with an expectation of what our spouse will do. How they will treat us, how they won't treat us. Many times those expectations are not stated. 
They're just assumed. And then, sweet little newlywed girl and newlywed boy, man, their first month of marriage, it is crazy because they're not meeting each other's expectations. And there's conflicts. Conflict and desires matter, according to James, because unmet desires can lead to conflict with others. And James is then, in a minute, going to move into this second relationship that is impacted by our desires. But before he does that, he's going to give this little footnote that we've already kind of teed up a little bit about desires, and he's going to give that to us in verse uh, 3. He says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So here's the big idea that's woven throughout this that he teased up there a little bit, right? And we've already said it, but let's just put it on the screen one more time. Many times we are desiring the wrong things or we're trying to satisfy good desires in the wrong way. Sometimes the problem is what we desire. Sometimes the problem is how we try to satisfy a desire. When we think about desires, the reality is many times we're either desiring the wrong things or trying to satisfy good desires in the wrong way. And sometimes the problem for me and sometimes the problem for you is what you desire. And sometimes the problem is how we try to satisfy a desire. And this... We've already seen one way that it can negatively impact relationships is relationships with other people, but there's another relationship that this reality can negatively impact. And James is going to move into that second relationship that it can impact in verse 4, where he says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Relationship number two that's impacted. And he talks about Christians who have friendship with the world are at enmity with God. Now, we've got to understand the word friendship because in our culture, friendship is kind of a loose word, right? It's kind of like some people... They, 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 they're checking out at ShopRite. They talk to the person about their Thanksgiving. The teller's like, oh, yeah, I went to Disney World. Oh, that's so great. And then the person comes home to their family and says, guess what? Man, I talked to my friend today, and my friend got to Disney World. And it's like, that, that, man, that person may become a friend, but in that 20-second conversation, maybe they're an acquaintance. Maybe they're still a stranger. But, you know, we, we throw this around, right? We... I had to get this off my chest the first service. I'll get it off my chest now. We also throw around the term best friend. Have you ever had somebody who's like, man, I'm so excited. I'm going to Disney World with my 12 best friends. No, you're not. You can only have one best friend, right? By definition, the word best means the best, right? You can't have 12 best friends. All of those 12, only one of them can be best. Okay, good. I feel better. I've now purged. My, my, my correction of the English language. Friendship is something that we kind of can be casual with. We've met somebody once and they're a friend. We use the word kind of loosely sometimes. But in this culture, there was nothing loose about the word. This idea of friendship meant this deep, deep alignment and connection. It meant there's this sharing of all things, that there's this connection in terms of values and worldviews and desires and priorities, this And in this passage, what James is saying is he's not saying, look, Christians, go become monks. He's not. 
And sometimes people read this passage and they take it out of context and they try to remove themselves from the world. That is not what Christians are supposed to do. We are not supposed to isolate ourselves. We are not supposed to have a bunker mentality. We are not supposed to often use war terminology, okay? But what he is saying we need to be careful about here is that, man, he's talking to Christians who have so aligned their desires and their worldview with the world, with an anti-biblical worldview, that the, the passions and the purposes and the attempts, they're chasing what the world says matters. They're not chasing what is valid. They're not chasing God. They're not chasing what God says matters. They're chasing and have aligned themselves with what a world opposed to God says matters. And what James is saying is, hey, when a Christian goes through a season of so aligning themselves not with God, not trying to find satisfaction in God, but in things that are opposite of God or away from God, then man, what that creates is static. And what they have created, they have moved themselves away from God, and it creates this this tension this static in the relationship with God that they have started. God hasn't moved. And here's the second reason, according to James, why our desires matter. Because trying to satisfy desire in the wrong way can lead to conflict with God. Sometimes unmet desires that we have lead to conflict with other Christians and with each each other. And trying to satisfy desires in the wrong way. Chasing the wrong desires or trying to satisfy good desires in the wrong way can also lead to conflict with God. Many times we are desiring the wrong things or we're trying to satisfy good desires in the wrong way. Sometimes the problem is what we desire and sometimes the problem is how we try to satisfy a desire. So let's slow down for a minute. Let's put it in neutral for a minute. Let's just kind of coast for a minute in the sermon. And let me ask you a question. What do you desire? What do you desire? If I had more time and it wasn't Thanksgiving, you'd have a little card to fill out. There'd be some cool tech way, but you don't know that because you know what you desire. And then let me propose and say this and ask you this question. Does what you desire and what you want and long for actually point to a deeper, more fundamental desire? And I think it does. I think it could. Because my guess is this, that what you real, what you, if I would ask you, what do you desire? And if you've taken the 14 seconds to think about what it is that you desire, what it is that you think will satisfy you, what it is that you think will make it feel all right right now, my guess is that's not really what you want. My guess is that you actually want something deeper. So, so if some of you are like, man, the inflation's going up. It used to cost me 50 bucks to fill my tank. Now it costs me 85. My gas bill's higher. What what I want is money. What I desire in this moment is money. Maybe, but probably what you desire is control or comfort 
What you most deeply, what you most fundamentally desire may not be an extra hundred bucks. What you most fundamentally may desire is you having the sense, you desire to have the sense that you are in control of your life and that you can make your own security and bring about your own comfort. If you say, what I desire is that this person will do this. What I desire is I think I know what's right. I want that person to listen to me. Maybe, but maybe what you more deeply desire is a sense of being valued and a sense of feeling like you have significance and worth. What do you desire? Next question is this. Does what you want and long for point to a deeper, more fundamental desire? And then here's the third question. How can God satisfy that desire? How can God satisfy that desire? Because he can. He can. I walk my dog a lot because he's got a lot of energy. And I'm going to be walking him even more because now we have our Christmas tree up and he wants to eat it and that will not be good. But for the past, I don't know, two weeks, when I've been walking my dog at night, and I just look up at creation. There's this, been this, um, this meaningful aspect to creation that has helped draw my heart more to God, which isn't really a surprise because that's what the Bible says it does. I, I've walked at night, and I've seen the moon. There is this ginormous object that is reflecting light, right? This moon object. I don't know if you know basic astronomy. Let me fill you in right now. There is this moon, this massive object that is in the sky. And you know what? When I walk my dog at night, it stays in the sky. It does not come crashing down upon my head. There is a God who has made this amazing moon that stays in the sky, and every night when you go to bed, he keeps it in the sky, and it doesn't come crashing down on our head. That is crazy. And a God who made a moon and keeps it in the sky and keeps it from crashing down on your head at night when you sleep is certainly able to satisfy your desire. He made everything with a word. He's big enough and he's good enough to satisfy what you long for. He is. He is. And sometimes we may know that, but we don't really believe it. Why? Why? I don't know. Why? Because we don't trust him. Now, are there going to be moments when we don't always feel satisfied? Yeah. Are there going to be moments when we believe that God can satisfy us and we don't experience it? Yeah. But in the totality of our lives, when the story is over, When we see Jesus, he's good enough to meet our longings and to satisfy our hope and to make it all okay. 
What, what James is going to do is he's going to say, look, your desires are so important because they impact how you live with each other and they impact how you live with God. And then he's going to give us some truths about God that are going to kind of try to pull us back to this alignment. Have you ever had your car out of alignment? Right? You know, you do the deal where you're like, then you drive down the road and you're supposed to lift your hands off the steering wheel. And if it's in alignment, it goes straight. And if it's out of alignment, it goes to the right. The other day, I got my amazing 21-year-old Toyota 4Runner on Route 8. And I felt all of a sudden it felt like a boat. And I'm like, wait, this car is not supposed to feel like a boat. It was kind of swaying and then sway back. And I'm like, oh, maybe the car is out of alignment. I mean, it was like possessed. Sway wasn't out of alignment. Apparently, my frame had rusted through, which causes all sorts of problems when you're trying to drive your car down Route 8. But there's been a miracle of healing, and my car is good, right? But here's the deal. If you've ever had your car out of alignment, what they need to do is they need to pull it back into alignment. They need to take some things and draw it back into alignment. And what James is going to try to do now is he's going to try to, to draw us back into alignment, to realign our desires with the things that God wants and try to realign us so that we know why God is trustworthy. And he starts doing that, this first truth, in verse 5, where he writes this. He says this, Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Do you suppose that it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell within us? This verse, what it means, man, this is a really complicated verse to try to figure out what it means. There's two reasons why understanding what this verse means and what it's saying is complicated. And the first reason has to do with trying to figure out who the subject of the verses. Because in the original Greek, there isn't, the he, there isn't a he, and the, there's no capitalization. And so the translators have had to make a decision about who the subject of this verse is. So in this translation, what it thinks is it's talking about God. right? This, these translators have looked at the, the larger context of the verse, and it says that this is referring to God, that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has put in you. God yearns jealousy. Does anybody have a different translation that seems to have a different nuance to this? Well, you might, because out there there's other translations that think that it's not talking about God's jealousy for us, but it's talking about humans' jealousy towards other people. There's a split among commentators because the Greek has left out some things, and the split is about whether this is referring to God being jealous for you, or whether it's the tendency of people to be jealous for all sorts of things. Because of the larger context, because of the structure, I kind of lean with the ESV. I think it's referring to God's tendency to be jealous for us, right? Am I, is it right? Could it be the other way? It could be. And so you have to kind of land on which way you think is right. We're going to land with that. That's the first confusion. The second confusion is this. When James says, do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to rule us? Now, one <clears throat> challenge with this is there is no Bible verse in the Old Testament that says, quote, he yearns jealously over the spirit that made to dwell within us. And so this like blows commentators' minds because they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Where is James coming up with this Bible verse that doesn't exist in the Bible? Like, what's going on here? And there's all sorts of different theories about that. But what James seems to be doing is not just quoting one verse. But when you look through this entire book, there is this theme that does talk about God's jealousy. 
There's this theme that talks about God's jealousy and desire for us to worship him. And so what most people think is James isn't quoting just one verse, but he's saying, look, when you look at Scripture as a whole and the totality of Scripture, what it shows you is that, man, God is jealous for our worship and God is jealous for us. And then when you look at the Bible as a whole, that's what he's saying. If you go with the way that I've kind of landed for this morning's talk, then the question is, okay, well, that's great. What, what, is, what is James trying to say here, right? What, what's the point? Here's the point. Now, what James is saying is that God is jealous for you. God doesn't want you to chase other things to try to find your satisfaction and have your desires be met. That God longs for you to be satisfied by him and by him alone. God is jealous for the entire devotion of your heart. And God is jealous for you to find the satisfaction of your desires in him. And God is jealous for that, not because he needs that, but because we need that. God doesn't need us to find our satisfaction in him, but you know what? We need to find our satisfaction in him. And what God knows is that is what will most deeply satisfy you, what will most deeply make you feel complete. And so God yearns for that for you because God <clears throat> deeply loves you. Now, again, when you try to find your satisfaction, Faction and God, does that mean that every day is going to be a great day? No. No. Because there are moments when you're going to have longings and you will pray, God, I'm tired of waiting. I'm tired of longing. That doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. That just means you're a person like David throughout the Psalms who's like, God, I'm dry. I'm empty. But yet I will still hope and wait in you. I will still run to you as a place in which my desires and my longings are satisfied. And one day, someday, when you see Jesus face to face, in that moment, all will be well. God is jealous for you to love him because he's worthy of your worship and because that is what is best for you. Here's the first truth to help all of us kind of realign our hearts that God loves you deeply and desires the entire devotion of your heart. God loves you deeply. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That the God who made the moon and every night keeps it from crashing down on your head, that God knows you and that God adores you, and that God wants what is best for you, and he is jealous for your worship because he is worthy of it and because he also knows that is what will most deeply satisfy you. Do you know it? Do you believe it? Will you trust it? Because whatever you're trusting instead is not as meaningful and ultimately satisfying as the God of the universe. 
And then there's the second point that James gives that I love. That he's like, look, what God wants is for you to most deeply desire him. He is jealous for that. And then what James says is the second thing in verse 6, right? Flip up the next verse if you can, verse 6. Then James says this, look, and, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What James is saying here is that when there's moments in life when you're like, okay, God, I want to desire you. I want to seek you. I want to find satisfaction in you. I want to run after you. But I ha- I'm flawed. I'm longings. Will you help me do that? What James says is when people humbly come before him in brokenness, seeking him to satisfy them, in those moments, God gives grace to the humble. He will give grace to you to enable you to help love him and to seek satisfaction and to be with him the way that he wants. There's this great quote by St. Augustine that says, um, command what you will and give what you command. Another way of doing the saying that is this, what God demands, he provides. What God demands, he provides. And God in his kindness is saying, look, I want you to seek me. I'm jealous for your devotion. I am worthy of it, and it's what is best for you. And in my grace, I am willing to give you the strength and the power to find your satisfaction in me and to chase your satisfaction in me. Jesus' brother has said, look, when there are desires that are wrong or desires that are met in the wrong way, it can create conflict with other people and it can create conflict with God. And then he wants to give us these truths about God to realign us, to remind us that God deeply loves you. And God desires your worship because it will satisfy you and God will give you grace to enable you to run after him and to chase after him. And then what James does is like in that man... Now it's time for you to act. He's going to call for action. He's going to say, if you're out of alignment in your heart, we need to come and act and get your heart back in alignment. And he does that in this last few verses where he says this in verses 7 through 10. He says, I've told you a way desires misplaced can cause to conflict and problems. I've told you why God is worthy of your desire. And how he will satisfy your desire. And then James says, and now I'm going to call for action. And I'll invite the worship team to come up here as we move to communion. He says this, submit yourselves to God. Interestingly, this idea of submitting is how he begins and ends it. There's two bookends. And then there's these like, like sniper rifle commands in between. And boom, boom. He says, look, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. What he's saying is some of your hearts are out of alignment because you're not resisting the devil. You're like jumping into the pond with him. Resist the devil. The next line it says, and he will flee from you. And then this one, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. He's not telling us to be a bunch of grumpy people, but what he's telling some of us is, look, you need to understand the devastation that sin causes. And you need to be broken by what sin is and how it's an affront to God. And you need to stop thinking you can manage it and stop thinking it's no big deal and be broken by what it is. There's one thing that this job has shown me is sin is devastating. And in those moments when we thought the thing that we can control, we can't control, 
and we reap the consequences of it, sin is devastating. And it wreaks havoc. And it impacts people's lives in painful ways. And what James is saying is don't take it lightly. If you're trying to satisfy the right desires in the wrong way or chasing wrong desires, you need to maybe be broken by what you're running after and the consequences it can have. And I don't know what action in there maybe for you this morning lines up. I don't know if the first call to look, submit yourself to the authority of God. Get back under his will. Get back to trusting him to satisfy your desires. I don't know if what some of you and what some of us need to do this morning is just confess. Maybe the only reason you're here on a snow flurry day is because God knows exactly what you're running after to satisfy your desires. And he's like, you need to deal with it. Maybe he wants you to deal with it today. Maybe some of you need to hear this comfort from his word, this amazing promise that, look, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, I don't know what it is that that you may be going through or if any of these are the action steps that God is calling you to take this morning, but, man, don't waste a moment if he's calling you to respond in some way. Misplaced desires cause all sorts of havoc. God is the source that will ultimately satisfy your desire. And then God sometimes calls for actions for us to repent and confess and recommit and draw near to him, knowing that the God of the universe has promised that he will draw near to us. We have a moment for those of us who are Christians to remember the way that God has drawn near to us already. And what God has done 2,021 years ago that we're going to be celebrate this Christmas season is he drew near to where we were so that we could be with him. He loves us so much that he knew we were hopeless on our own to ever work our way up to him. And he knew we would chase all sorts of things that don't satisfy us. And he wants what's best for us. And restoration to the Father is what is best. And so the Son came to be a substitute for you and a substitute for me and to stand in our place and be punished because of us and for us so that we would never need to know the punishment of God, so that we could be satisfied by the love and the mercy and the grace of God instead of being under the wrath of God because he loves us, because God is love. And for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we have a chance this morning to remember his goodness and to remember how he drew near to us through communion. So as you pull off the top label of your packet, let me read to you how Paul takes us back to this moment, and he says this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. We do this together as a body, remembering the body of Christ that was given for us because he knows that will most deeply satisfy you is a relationship with the Father, and he is worthy of his worship, and his worship by you is what is best for you. And we remember that, and we affirm that, and we draw near to him by taking this together as a body. And then he continues this in the next clause and says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And hey, here's the deal. Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. It's not a fairy tale, right? And one day, someday, if you're a believer in Jesus, you will see him face to face. And you won't have to, have, you won't have to worry about if your faith is weak because it'll be by sight. You won't have to cling to hope by your fingernails anymore because there will be no more hope because it will be by sight. And in that moment, all will be well. And at the end of the story, you will say, it is good. Because all of my longings and all of my satisfactions, finally in this moment, I have realized, will Jesus, my King, be praised? He's coming back. He is. And one day, someday, we will see him. And until that day, we need to remind one another of the truth, and we need to speak the truth to each other, and we remember him and we draw near to him by taking the cup together now to remember the forgiveness we have in him.